my hairi mai ki te first up. It's Ratu, Tuesday the 7th of June. Ko Nathan Rarere, aho, coming up today. We're going to go to the UK where Boris Johnson's leadership is under threat. The Cook Islands farewells one of its great characters. Trader Jack's founder Jack Cooper to our friend Liana Scott is in Rarotonga with reaction to that. I'll talk inflation, crime and te reo with Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis and a restaurant where customers choose how much to pay for their meals is doing more than just providing cheap dinners. It's interactive if you're prepared to give, to listen, to participate and it's a worthy cause and it's so good that so much food that could be wasted is being consumed by us and it saves cooking. Maria, welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarere, and boy, have we got a show for you today. We begin uh, this morning in the UK, where Prime Minister Boris Johnson's facing a confidence vote brought by backbench members of his own party, of the Tory party. Uh, in a few minutes, we will cross to London to speak to our correspondent, Ellie J. But first, here's a little wrap-up for you, a report from BBC's Helen Katz. For weeks, the contents of Sir Graham Brady's inbox has been a source of intense speculation. Now, there's confirmation. The threshold of 15% of the parliamentary party seeking a vote of confidence in the Prime Minister has been passed. Therefore, a vote of confidence will take place uh, within the rules of the 1922 committee. That vote will take place this evening. The Jubilee offered a brief break for number 10, but the movement towards this point has been building over many months. Some Tory MPs were angry about revelations of lockdown-breaking parties in Downing Street as details kept on emerging and the Prime Minister himself was fined for breaking Covid laws. I don't think you can be uh, in charge of setting the rules during lockdown and then blatantly allowing people under your uh, direct uh, leadership to break those rules. We now have a clear picture of a much wider set of concerns and they are not just about Partygate, although that is a concern. Uh, They are also about core policy issues that unfortunately now he has to go. Boris Johnson has written to Conservative MPs acknowledging he'd come under a great deal of fire which had been painful for the whole party. He said tonight's vote was a golden chance to put this behind them and asked for their support to take the country forward. His allies are flooding the airwaves. I think the focus now has to be, as I say, not on the chaos of a divisive or destructive leadership contest, but to back the PM today. That's what I'm certainly doing. I'm encouraging my colleagues to do so. I think that he will deliver for this country and I think he would go on to win a general election with, uh, with, with an ambitious uh, programme for continuous uh, improvements. I will be back in the Prime Minister and I think uh, the majority of uh, Conservative MPs will do as well because I think our constituents want us to get on with that job. But other critics have come into the open too. The former Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt, seen as a potential leadership candidate, said the party was no longer trusted by the electorate and today's decision was to change or lose. He, he said, would be voting for change. And the government's anti-corruption champion chose this morning to resign, saying he didn't believe Mr Johnson's actions were in line with the code governing ministers' behaviour. It should be a resignation issue for him. It's certainly a resignation issue for me. And I don't see this with any degree of delight because I think he's done some amazing things which I personally am very, very grateful for. But 
none of that, none, none of the good things he's done necessarily you know, justify breaking and input, you know, the ministerial code, which he himself has said is one of the underpinnings of good government and integrity in government in this country. Boris Johnson will meet his MPs in Parliament at four o'clock to put the case for keeping him in person. A secret ballot will run between six and eight and the result will be announced at nine o'clock. It's expected the Prime Minister is likely to get the 180 votes he needs to win, but the overall number will be key. A slim victory could still spell big problems for Mr Johnson. There was Helen Katz with that report. It's ten past five. Joining me now from London as she uh, helps gather up bunting, uh, she eats the mushy peas and she's dodging monkeypox. It's our correspondent, Ali J. Morena, Ali, how are you? Atamaria, Nathan. I'm very well. <laughs> okay. Hey, so tell me this. How has Boris Johnson's leadership got to this point of a, of a confidence vote? Well, it's been, I mean, as you said, it's it has very much overtaken the news here. We've gone straight from this big bumper jubilee jamboree party weekend and you wake up on Monday morning and this is the news of the day. And it is, it's big news as well, this leadership vote. So over the weekend too, the big news was that um, the Prime Minister was booed when he attended a service of Thanksgiving at St Paul's on Friday. So when he arrived and when he left, and this was all well publicised, it was on live TV, on social media. Um, but we're finding out too, it's unlikely that this would have influenced any further Conservative MPs or Conservative Party members to say anything. But that's kind of because they might have already said something. So to to talk first a little bit about the process of a no confidence vote. To start this, uh, there's lots of talk of the 1922 committee, and that's uh, a group of elected conservative backbenchers, 18 of them. And the chairman of that group, Sir Graham Brady, has to receive 54 letters minimum from conservative party members saying that they have no confidence in the party leader. Um, So talking about what was happening over the weekend, there were reports this morning that said it turned out that these letters of no confidence sent by uh, his own party were already received by the committee, but the members sending them uh, had dated them on the 6th of June so that it wouldn't disrupt the celebrations for the Jubilee. So they, they were saying this morning it's thought the Prime Minister was informed last night this was going to happen. And first thing this morning, he sent that letter to Conservative Party members saying, uh, we need to put a an end to the media's favourite obsession and uh, asking them to let him get on with the job. So as we were hearing in, in that report just then, all this afternoon, the Prime Minister has been talking to uh, Conservative MPs en masse in a closed meeting, trying to persuade them to vote for him. And they will just be going in uh, to have that vote now. I, you know, one of his uh, supporters I always see is the uh, Nadine Dorries, and and I see she's I saw she was going. Yes, people were booing, but there were people cheering as well. Why wasn't that reported? So I'm sure she she's probably had his back. I would imagine with the media. Has it been her and and who are some of the others that might have spoken out in support of him? Oh, absolutely. So most of the cabinet have said they'll support him. Um, the, As you say, the regulars, um, Nadine Dorries has been very vocal about this. She's been on uh, news channels all day saying that if it is, if they do vote against him, it will go against the will of the public because he was voted in. Um, she also said on Sky News that this is an anti-Brexit plot by certain members. Uh, and on Twitter, she's had, uh, she's had a bit of an argument with um, Jeremy Hunt, who's the former health secretary, who said he didn't 
didn't support the PM. But this one uh, might have backfired a little as she she's going into what Jeremy Hunt had said in 2020 about how to deal with the pandemic. And people are kind of saying um, this shows they had different advice. It also shows she's airing this private converse, conversation that she she shouldn't be sharing. Um, Dominic Raab as well, we heard in that report too. He's come out and said he supports Boris Johnson. He also said uh, he didn't he hasn't seen any of the video footage of um, the PM being booed a couple of days ago, which is interesting too. And Jacob Rees-Mogg has just very recently said that there are a lot of people who, if they almost, he didn't say this, but he's suggesting that they've come into government with Boris Johnson and so they should vote to support him almost if they want to kind of stay stay in that government. So the problem is, though, it's a secret ballot. So some some MPs, some Conservative Party members have come out publicly and said, I won't support him. Jeremy Hunt is one of those. He said he's uh, will be voting for change, but we'll have absolutely no idea who who is voting for and who is voting against until that magic number, 180, if it, if it reaches that, then we'll find out what will happen. Oh, and then, you know, I, I think I, I it's, it's he's not going to lose this, is he? You know, he never seems to. He seems quite Teflon. In fact, it seems very hard to remove a leader from anywhere in the world, uh, I think, there. But I'm, ju- I'm just wondering, this the, this causes, you know, ructions in the party until the next election, doesn't it, Ali? Absolutely. And a lot of the analysis is saying that he'll probably survive the vote, but that doesn't mean he'd be able to cling on till the next election. He mm. would need, or they would need 180 to vote for a motion of no confidence or confidence. That's the majority. But if it's over 100 party members, that can show it's a significant portion of the party who either want change or do support him. And it's difficult to see how he could how he could cling on. But with Boris Johnson, anything's possible. Yeah, it is. Ellie J, thank you very much. Great to hear your voice. It's a quarter past five here at First Up. Easy question today here at uh, First Up on RNZ National. If you were a Tory MP, how would you be voting um, on this? But also, when these confidence votes come up, and I'm thinking here, think of the impeachments we've seen or something else like that. Uh, when this happens, as a member of the public, do you, do you even at all think that there's ever going to be a change in leadership? 2101, what do you think of these? Are they actually Do they actually mean anything? Uh, 2101, or, or at, uh, you can email first up at rnz.co.nz. Well, it's local democracy reporting time. This morning we're in Whakatane with Diane McCarthy. Diane's been reporting on the long-running campaign to establish Māori wards in the district, which has been led by a very determined local by the name of Tony Boynton, who's now standing in the upcoming local elections. I asked her why having Māori wards is so important. Oh, it's been a long journey, Nathan. One of the biggest campaigners who's been at the forefront of all the moves in Fakatani to have Māori wards instated is Tony Boynton. And she started back in 2017. She wanted to get the Māori wards in for the 2019 election. She went to council with a submission asking him to create Māori wards and they voted both six to five. But the answer was yes. But it wasn't to be because lobby group Hobson's Pledge supported a petition to force council to hold a referendum on the decision. And she led the uh, Vote Yes to Māori Wards campaign. That failed, but she encouraged Māori to stand anyway. 
the 2019 local government elections had the highest ever number of Māori standing in the Whakatapani district. That included Ms Boynton. None of them won any seats, but she says that just proved her point, that why uh, Māori wards were needed. And and is that Uh, that why she sees them as being so important, that there are Māori wards in the district? Yeah, well, we have more than 43% of our population who identify as Māori. So to have none of the Māori who who stood in the election actually made it to um, a seat, then she just saw that as really important. So she, what she did, she created a community group called Te Ropu Tautoko Māori, mm-hmm. and they led the charge for Māori wards. And she also established a national forum of Māori ward campaigners to support the establishment of wards across the country. And they petitioned Parliament to change the Māori ward legislation they said it was racist because Māori wards were the only type of ward that was allowed a council decision to be vetoed by a public poll. And she delivered 11,000 signatures to our local MP, Tamati Coffee, on the steps of Parliament. And, you know, that was instrumental in having legislation changed and then Whakatane District Council voted unanimously in 2021 to include Māori wards in this year's election. And she's yeah. a, sounds like a determined go-getter of a woman. Oh, here. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so this is Whakatane's first local election to have Māori wards. Yeah. So, yeah, it seems really fitting that the first person to announce that they're standing for a Māori ward in Fakatani is the person who's been at the front of every submission, every petition, every hikoi to bring this about. That's Diane McCarthy in Fakatani. 20 past five. I'm Nathan Rarere. You're with First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, we're going to cross to the Cook Islands uh, as they farewell one of the great characters uh, of Rarotonga and also an Onihanga restaurant where diners pay what they can afford is helping more than just those with money troubles. You will buy a boss a lovely bunch of coconut. There they are standing in the air. Big ones, small ones, some as big as They are. Winter veggies uh, should be coming through in good supply post this first long weekend of nearly winter, very late autumn. Uh, to tell us more, here's the Minister of Fruit and Veggies. He is Glenn Forsyth. Morena, Glenn. Morena, buddy. How are you? I'm pretty good, mate. Uh, tell me about this. Five plus a day recommendations are always good. Give us, give us the good oil. What do you got? Oh, they are. The Five Plus A Day Charitable Trust are an amazing organisation established in 2007. Their goal is simple, increase consumption of fresh fruit and veg for better health. I mean, we would be lost without their frequent wisdom for first up. And their bold heading for this month is, for good health this winter, look to seasonal vegetables for immunity support. And like clockwork, locally grown winter vegetables are here. Julie North, registered nutritionist with vegetables.co.nz, she reminds us a strong immune system is our best defence against winter ills and chills. And fresh vegetables is one way to get these nutrients, namely vitamin C, folate and iron. Some of the best, broccoli, carrots, 
Silver Beat and Coomera. She suggests heating up your homemade vegetable soups for lunch at school or work. You know, start with root veg like parsnips, potato and yams and throw in sliced leeks and silver beet for a boost of flavour. She also loves vegetables frittatas for an affordable breakfast. Mixed leftover roast vegetables such as carrots and coomera with pan-fried leeks. Stir in lightly beaten eggs and a splash of milk and bake until the egg is set. Add some fresh herbs for more flavour and imagine that on Vogel's toast. That would be magic. You sounded very exotic when you said frittata there, Glenn, I'll tell you that. <laughs> what are the uh, best buys in veggies this week? Uh, we have a full house this month from five plus a day, two vegetables and two fruits for in-season choices. Carrots and parsnips top the veggie list. And as kids, we had enough to sink a ship in Dad's 421 soup through winter. But cook grated carrots with a knob of butter for a nutty flavour, but be, be alert for burning. Now, when boiling, do not use salt. Simply rely on the carrot's natural sweetness. Much of the food value in the parsnip is in its starch, and as a rule, the vegetables left in the ground until after the first frost, which converts much of the starch to sugar, giving that parsnip its distinctive flavour. On to Kuma, though. We rang Lockie yesterday, as he said, to check in late May to find out what lies ahead until this Christmas. The good news is there is plenty, and it's all out of the ground. We had an overflow from last year, a warm autumn, lack of labour, slow harvesting, so more grew, and it wasn't wet, so no rots or loss of them in the mud as they dug. So gold and purple will be tight, but lots of orange, and it's big. Please don't let this scare you. 700 grams to 1.2 kilo each, and he said great to cut into discs, slice into chips, and you'll you'll have one full plate for the whole family. Orange is also good in soups too. Uh, On to the red, it's more misshapen this year and difficult to peel, so leave the skin on and chop up for roasts instead. Potato New Zealand came up with a good saying, peeling is stealing, as all the goodness is in there. 25% of us don't peel now, they say, so please get in behind the Kuma Grows again this year. They really need you. Yeah, I don't peel either, but it's just because I'm lazy. And I'm like, oh, is it healthy? There you are, I'm being healthy. Uh, tell me, fruit, though, I mean, it's, it is. it seems to me like it's veggie season when it's cold. Tell me about fruit. What do you got there? Yeah, you're right. The two fruits that five plus a day are going, to, you know, giving a nudge for June are New Zealand lemons and kiwi fruit. Already we're seeing lemons at three ninety nine a kilo retail and less for larger ones. So that's exceptional buying compared to summer prices. And kiwi fruit, I mean, what can we say? We benefit greatly from export overruns and supply is plentiful. Question for you, Nathan. Have you ever visited a Dawa store? I was just about to. Okay, that's spelled D-A-H-U-A. They're also known as the D-H Greengrocers, similar to the Taiping franchise. Franchise, I believe only in the greater Auckland area, but they offer an alternative range of groceries. They're competitive on fresh fruit and vegetables, who Benny buys for them daily from the market, and they also range high-end imported fresh fruit you wouldn't find in mainstream shops. We rang Peter Pan from Healthy Fresh. He's one of these importers, and things are slowly getting easier again from places like Thailand, Vietnam, and Taiwan. And here is some of the glorious lineup that he is bringing in. Fresh mangoes, dragon fruit, uh, the rambutan, mangosteens and the highly prized fruit the durian so yeah if you do get a chance pop into one of those stores you, you'll be very amazed oh you just said the durian that we'll get back to that i actually have been to a dawara just googled yes i have thank you very much glenn forsyth you want it? those supermarkets are incredible this Sing your Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. If you've ever experienced a durian, and that's it, you haven't tasted a durian, you've 
you've experienced the durian. You'll all know you all made the same face that I did. What a day today is. There's plenty of um, big birthdays and big happenings on today, so let's try and get through them. Dean Martin. Wasn't born in Napoli, he was um, born in Ohio. But uh, born in 1917, Dean Martin, born Dino Paul Crocetti. Uh, you think that's an Italian name, and it's true. His parents uh, only spoke Italian, and he only spoke Italian until the age of five. But the thing was, he got to school and the other kids teased him because of his accent, because he didn't speak English like they did. So uh, he took up boxing to protect himself, became a boxer, had a record of 25 and 11 under the name Kid Crochet. Uh, and then uh, he got into a bit of acting there and he changed his name uh, when he got into the spotlight going by Dino Martini, because there was an opera singer called Nino Martini. But there you go, Dean, ba- Dean Martin was born on this day in 1917, died in 1995. Uh, here's one for the arty ones. Uh, Paul Gauguin. Born on this day in 1848, the the French painter, sculptor. I didn't realise this until I was researching, but I thought it was interesting. In 1888, Vincent van Gogh attacked Gauguin with a knife, and then Gauguin left, and then van Gogh went, I've got to use this for something. Oh, my ear, and he cut his ear off. So there you go, Uh, Paul Gauguin. Another big music birthday on this day, because two people sang the same song. What about this one? 1958. Prince Rogers Nelson was born. His parents were both musicians, a jazz singer, a pianist. He was named after his father's best-known stage name that he used to use, which was Prince Rogers when he played in the Prince Rogers uh, trio. Uh, Prince didn't like his name as a kid. He wanted everyone to call him Skipper, and it stayed his family nickname right up until his death. Uh, He was born epileptic as well, uh, Prince. So uh, just an incredible performer and still the best Super Bowl halftime show. 70-year-old actor today, Liam Neeson. Happy birthday to you, uh, Liam Neeson. Also, Bear Grylls, who right now, as you know, is probably carving a house out of a piece of wood uh, that we do. And I said that two people sang the same song because Prince was the original singer of uh, that song, Kiss, and this guy... Think I better dance now. And boy, could he dance. Sir Thomas Jones Woodward, O-B-E. Uh, Tom Jones, Welsh songster. As a child, he spent two years bedridden with tuberculosis, and boy, did he make up for it the way that he lived his life. He's 82 years old today, and that is the happenings on this day of our life that we call the 7th of June. It's business, it's business time. That's what you're trying to say, you're trying to say, let's get down to business, it's business time. It's business, it's business time. It is Giles Beckford who's uh, with us here from the business team. Kia ora, sir. Kia ora to you, Nathan. Uh, it's good. I, I had uh, I felt very honoured yesterday. I had a couple of mates that appeared on the uh, Queen's Birthday Honours list, which was quite neat. I mean, oh, look at those. Uh, but I understand the business community going, hang on, they're just getting those for doing their jobs. What about us? <laughs> It's uh, it's look the days are gone when the top of the honours list, whether it be Queen's Birthday or New Year's, would be littered with the names of the captains of industry, the ones who ran all the big companies, uh, and it would seem just for being at the top of the big company, a knighthood was almost guaranteed, and certainly you'd get a lesser gong for uh, small involvement, but. I wandered through the list uh, a little bit like you. I thought uh, Hugh Rennie, who was one of the knighthood uh, honours, um, he, he got uh, an honour for services to the law uh, and to business. Well, 
not really business because he uh, he did help f- found the National Business Review back in the uh, 70s uh, and the like, but that he was mainly in, in law. But others there, Ted Manson, uh, well-known uh, in charity and in building. Um, John Monaghan, former head of uh, Fonterra shareholders. Uh, Chris Ellison, uh, who is, in fact, he's our honorary consul in Western Australia involved in the mining industry. Anne Irwin, who was an accountant, but uh, well-known for her involvement uh, in company governance and the like. Uh, John Baird, who used to be a head of Goodman Fielder, used to run the Watties operation. And that was about the sum total of it. Now, I'm sure that a lot of the other people involved who got honours may have some link to business, but it just struck me as as interesting that uh, business, uh, big business, doesn't have the clout, isn't recognised uh, by the recent governments. Um, I'm just thinking there, they got someone receiving services, uh, uh, serv- uh, awarded for services in receiving dividends. That's a good one. Uh, for services <laughs> right. for services in practising a golf swing in the middle of a conversation when services you're talking to, to them. creative accounting. Yes. <laughs> uh, and to profitability. It's, yeah. Look, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, um, because, in fact, the old business honours list, you have to say, was just representation of the mm. stale, pale male culture that... Uh, the old fan- Thanks well for your backing on that campaign that we did on the way in there too, sir. This not saying that ever happened, no, but, but it not. might have. Uh, thank you, Giles. Giles Beckford yep. there. Uh, of course, the business team will be back with you on Morning Report this morning at 10.27. Let's have a look at the money markets now. Your New Zealand dollar is buying you 64.89 US cents, 90.54 Australian cents, 60.70 Euro cents, 51.89 British pence, 4.32 yuan, 85.47 Japanese yen, 39.77 Russian rubles and 10.97 Zambian kwacha. Mm. 26 to 6 right now. I'm first up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Radity. If you've ever been to the Cook Islands and you've ever had a beer there, there's a very good chance that it was Trader Jack's and that was the place where you enjoyed that famous hospitality there of the island nation. The bar and the restaurant on the waterfront there in Avarua has survived three cyclones and a visit by Zach Guilford and remains one of the South Pacific's most famous landmarks. Uh, Trader Jack's founder Jack Cooper passed away last week with the country mourning one of its great characters. Characters. And joining me now is the President of the Cook Islands Tourism Industry Council and Manager of the Muri Beach Club a Hotel in Rarotonga, it's Liana Scott. Kia ora, Liana. Uh, kia ora, uh, Liana. How are you? Oh, kia ora. Kia ora. Very good, thank you. Tell, tell the people about Jack Cooper. Uh, Jack was uh, certainly one of a kind, and as you said, he's a sort of uh, character that is resilient and a bit of a maverick. And um, nothing was going to get him down, not even three cyclones. So uh, he's the type of person who was uh, brutally honest and had no filter, and that's being nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he was on the opposite side. He was also very kind and generous and innovative, and he encouraged local Cook Islanders um, to upskill themselves and learn and um, think outside of the box. So he was all of those things all in one. Yeah, it, and it was quite a fixture, wasn't it? I mean, you, I know, I know Liana, you, you can often see people's posts that they do on Instagrams and yeah, Twitters and absolutely. whatever they do. Trader, Trader Jacks would have been in most of those? I would say that almost every single person that came to the Cook Islands went to Trader Jacks at least once. Um, it was somewhere you went to for just a drink or a meal. 
Um, and you'd be sitting, you know, next to the prime minister or lawyers, or it, it, every, it was a very casual, I guess, um, pub slash restaurant that you hung out at after work on a Friday afternoon. Um, but certainly, even from a tourist perspective, it's iconic because um, they had it always sold some form of seafood, even though the island may be out of some one thing or another. They always had seafood on the menu. Um, and they were well known for their regulars, and that's um, the staff, you know, stayed with Trader Jack's loyally uh, for 30, 35 years. So these are just such an iconic place, and, and everyone would remember you and remember what you drank, and, and that's sort of the legacy of Trader Jack's and Jack Cooper himself. Yeah. Oh well. Hopefully, everyone that's been up uh, been up to the islands uh, remembers this. Actually, it's a good time to mm. ask you how is how's tourism going up your way? You know, it's it's doing well. Um, most places are sitting around the seventy to eighty percent occupancy. Um, it's still booming around. We're still having issues with getting a rental car on certain days. So um, business is good. Uh, it's not to say that it's going to stay like that because obviously the rest of the world is starting to open up as well. Um, and we are still open just to uh, New Zealand as the main port of entry to the Cook Islands. So we haven't got quite got our um, Sydney Rarotonga direct or our LA Rarotonga direct. That's slowly um, happening in the pipeworks. But as you know, shortage of aircraft and pilots for those aircraft and those sorts of logistic things seems to be delaying um, delaying developments in that uh, area. But at present, we're just happy to um, have business. Our business is going well. Restaurants are busy and full. The island's pumping. And, uh, you know, and, and our um, COVID cases are very, very low. If not, there's some days where there's no cases at all. So uh, things are looking uh, positive, absolutely. Well, that's great. And you know what? The weather here is doing you a favour. It's got very cold in Aotearoa. So, um, <laughs> you on music up to... to my ears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Liana Scott there with uh, just news from the Cooks and also memories of Jack Cooper. 2226. I'm Nathan Radere, and you are here on First Up on RNZ National. Still to come in a few minutes. We're going to talk inflation, crime, diversity, and and possibly royal jubilees if there's time. With National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis and Onihunga Restaurant, where diners pay what they can afford, is helping more than those with just money troubles. Everybody Eats has become a community hub where people gather to celebrate their differences and make new friendships. Last week, reporter Leonard Powell caught up with Everybody Eats founder Nick Loosely to find out why the charity was moving on from its original pop-up site in the city in Karangahapi Road. Uh, we sent him along to the Onihunga restaurant to uh, um, find out how it works and why it's gained such a loyal group of customers. Hi, I'm Mindy and I'm going to be your waitress for tonight. Tonight on the menu we have got carrot and coriander soup with a beautiful scone, steak and ginger chop suey, or you can have a carrot chop suey, it's a vegetarian option, and lovely steamed sponge pudding for dessert. Now, have you got any allergies that I need to know about, any dietary requirements? No? Fabulous. Mindy has been volunteering two nights a week at Everybody Eats, first at its Karangahapi Road pop-up restaurant, and now at its Onihunga site. I bring my daughter in here every second Sunday and we do it together, the two of us. I love the people. It's just I meet some incredible characters. The families that come in here and you get to know them 
and chat to them. Also, the, the people I work with is, is great fun, and it's, it's yeah, just a lovely concept. It's a cool midweek evening, and the restaurant, which shares its space with Onehunga neighbourhood eatery, is bustling. Operating Sundays to Thursdays between 6 and 8pm, anywhere from 50 to 100 three-course meals are served to walk-in diners, who give koha in return. I caught up with a table of regulars who come along every night. Bev lives alone and says getting to know others has really opened up her social circles. Be brave and do it at least once. It's interactive if you prepare to give, to listen, to participate. And it's a worthy cause and it's so good that so much food that could be wasted is being consumed by us. And it saves cooking. For fellow pensioner Steve, who also lives alone, Everybody Eats has opened his eyes to the types of foods he used to overlook. I used to be a very fussy eater. Here I eat everything and anything. I just couldn't believe the type of food that they dish up and the people that I've met. Rose has been eating here for a year and is keen to encourage people who might be sceptical to give the concept a try. Well they should come, I mean I think some people think it's a soup kitchen and it's for down and outs but it's pay as you feel and a lot of um, business people come and you know they pay as if they would at a restaurant. We contribute in the same way so we don't see it as um, using it as a a charity but we also feel that we're taking advantage of the food that might go to waste and, and contributing by having our meal made of those contributions. Rebecca and her 10-year-old son Isaac have been coming to Everybody Eats for two years. Isaac has severe autism and Rebecca says the welcoming atmosphere has seen his social skills thrive. We started because I really like the concept of the restaurant, no waste food, and then because my son has some special needs, but I feel very comfortable to bring him here because the uh, staff are so friendly. Rebecca says being accepted for his uniqueness has been comforting to Isaac. He was even surprised by the staff with a cake for his last birthday. Isaac, how old are you? I'm 10. And do you prefer your soup, the main or dessert? Main! Thank you, Isaac. Thank you. Nice to meet you. As I make my way into the kitchen at the end of service, I meet Chef Jamie Robert Johnston, who is cleaning up alongside several volunteer sous chefs. One of just two full-time employees at the site, Jamie's enthusiasm for his job is clear. Having started off in the industry washing dishes in his hometown of Kent, Jamie went to culinary school before landing his first job in Buckingham Palace. After bouncing around a few pub chains, he started to feel burnt out, so age 25 he landed in New Zealand and started up a food truck. Jamie fell in love with the Everybody Eats co-papa after joining the kitchen team at the K-Road pop-up. I literally had someone come to me and they go, hey, um, have you heard of Everybody Eats? They're looking for chefs. I was like, oh man, don't know if I have time, I've got the business going on. And then when I found out it was about food waste and helping, you know, food poverty and stuff like that, I was like, right, I'm in. Yeah, sweet. I was almost hooked on the idea of it because I was like, wow, like, I get to use my skills and kind of utilise them more instead of my own personal things you know like for me it was all about getting my accolades getting that becoming the best being that and that's all that mattered to me and it's a very blinkered vision since coming on board full-time jamie says the ego he used to carry as a chef has subsided i was kind of thinking about retiring from cooking actually and then i thought well what's the best way to keep myself cooking um when it's not for myself and it was like being becoming selfless in the way you cook made it so much more to me like it's become a community 
Using food donated from the likes of Farrow, Kiwi Harvest and Cullies, Jamie teaches rookie volunteers how to operate in a commercial kitchen. What I've tried to do with this kitchen is turn it into the kitchen that isn't the same as any other kitchen where we can have a 10-year-old girl in there plating up desserts. We can have a kid with ADHD whose mum's literally pulling her hair out going, I don't know what to do with her. Put her in the kitchen for 10 minutes with me and somehow, like, they're calm, they're enjoying it, they, they need to be in that high-stimulus environment. So to see the smile on their face when they leave at the end of the day, knowing that they've achieved something and there wouldn't be other that many opportunities where they could actually get into a real kitchen, learn some knife skills, learn some some people skills and just learn to communicate and work as a team. He encourages anybody to give everybody eats a try, whether as a customer or a volunteer. Everyone's welcome. Doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, uh, you know, what life's done to you, what people have done to you, like this place is for you to come in and just forget about that just for as long as you can. Have a great meal, something hot, something wholesome, hopefully something that reminds you of your past, maybe brings a tear to your eye because that makes my day. You know, like when you see people get that emotional about food because it's, it's been everything for me. So like if I can give that back to them, it's, yeah. After they finish eating, diners like Bev and Steve come to the counter and pay for their meal at the FPOS machine with whatever they can afford. It's different for everybody and no amount is frowned upon. Leonard Powell reporting. <laughs> The professionals of the RNZ ship uh, morning report and Susie Ferguson is with us right now. Kia ora Susie, how are you? Kia ora, I'm well, how are you? I'm very good at thinking here, our better name for mushy peas. GB oh. guacamole or pommy yeah. pesto, which one do you like? <laughs> I like pommy pesto, you like that's pommy great. Pesto? Okay, I'm there, go was, with that. there was a cabinet minister in the UK who once referred to it as guacamole by mistake. <laughs> that's great. Memorably in an election campaign, I well, think. Oh, this must be guacamole, look at it, I've seen yeah, it. Yeah, he, he was in a fish and chip shop and he's like, oh, is that guacamole? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> that's, I'm a man of the people, look at me, I'm buying I know, fish and I know, chips. I know, it's a good day. Eh? I'll have one of those ke- kebabs, I'll have one of them <laughs> tubes. Um, so you, you'll be quite a bit of focus, I would gather, on what's happening in the UK uh, on the show this morning? Oh, what's happening in the UK? Well, you know, apparently some guy, uh, his friend Nadine Doris, says that people are being rude to him. Oh, yeah. So we are going to be talking about Boris Johnson. Um, UK Prime Minister facing a no-confidence vote by his own Tory MPs. Of course, there's been a lot of speculation around this and how perhaps it wouldn't be announced to spoil the Queen's Jubilee, which, of course, was the other major event happening in the UK. Uh, It would seem that that perhaps has been the case. We will be getting a lot more on, indeed, what is happening with Boris Johnson. Mm. I think it's happening within our time frame. Um, 8 o'clock I think is when the announcement will be made or thereabouts about what has happened in that vote Uh, the voting underway I think shortly Um, also we'll be looking back here at teachers they're saying that children's behaviour and their achievement is worse because of the pandemic and also taking a look at the health system one in three nursing students dropping out before qualifying because of financial pressure so we'll talk to the Prime Minister about that and also about the state of the health system Wonderful. Thank you very much, Susie Ferguson. They're up after six o'clock. Well, look, every week get a chance to speak. I get a chance to speak to the deputy leaders of both parties. This morning, you're going to hear from Nicola Willis, Nationals 2 ICA, began by asking her about the criticism that her leader, Christopher Luxon, faced, some of it really racist, after he penned a tribute to Joe Hawke in Te Reo Māori after the activist and politician died last month. Chris it utterly stands by uh, the tribute he put to Joe Hawke on uh, Facebook. 
And and what he was doing was recognising a great Komatoa, uh, a great New Zealander. The nature of social media is that some people are pretty reactive on there. And I think what I have observed um, with Tereo is that there's a generation of New Zealanders who feel increasingly comfortable with its use, have been raised with it around them. You know, my kids uh, and really people my age and younger have had a lot of Tereo as they've grown up in New Zealand. But there are some people for whom it is less familiar and who sometimes appear to feel threatened by it. And I think that we have a job to do to make sure that they can come along for the ride and feel that this is embracing a part of our culture that makes us distinctive and special. Uh, and the more that we can do to make people feel included in that, the better. Yeah, I'll give it for that. Do you, I mean, yeah, it must have, and I guess that's the reasoning by you, you think that a lot of them wrote like they felt that, you know, Mr Luxon had let them down. Well, look, I think for some people, as I say, they feel alienated by the use of the language because they don't understand it at all. Some people didn't have any of it used when they were growing up. It wasn't part of their schooling. It hasn't been part of their daily life. So when they hear it, they feel excluded. And look, I think that the opportunity for all of us is to help those people come along on the journey uh, and to understand that it's not a threat at all, uh, that we can work together on understanding the language better. And helpfully, uh, what our leader did was also provided some remarks in English. Uh, so those who didn't have the use of Tereo could read it in our other official language. And I think that's appropriate because it meant that people who didn't understand Tereo could also access the English version. Yeah. Um, less surprisingly, your, your party's come under attack from the government, you know, as, as is the cut and thrust of uh, debate in the chamber. Um, they say you're treating the cost of living crisis as some sort of political game. And, and what was interesting is we had a look around several of the commentators have also rejected the idea that government spending is behind inflation, um, including Liam Dan uh, in, in the Herald there as well. Are, are you addressing the issue, or or is this actually just a good you know um, story for you guys? Absolutely, we're addressing the issue. Uh, our view is that the government isn't doing anything to get at the structural drivers of inflation. And we have acknowledged that spending, big government spending, is one thing that can put upward pressure on inflation. We've also said it's about the additional costs that are added to the economy. Uh, whether that's taxes for landlords or the proposed new jobs tax. It's also about policies to help unblock the bottlenecks in the economy. For example, immigration policy, which has made it so hard for businesses to get workers. We've also said it's about the Reserve Bank's mandate. So we've put forward a lot of constructive proposals for what we think the government could do to help get at the drivers of inflation. They've rejected those. That's fine. That's what we have a political debate about. But we challenge the government to say, what is your plan for getting up on top of inflation? It's not enough to say, oh, we think it's driven by overseas, because the reality is it's affecting New Zealanders uh, and more should be done. Uh, we're actually, I had a look at the uh, the, fl- uh, the inflation rate around the OECD. We're doing pretty well, aren't we, though? I mean, I see that the OECD average is, what's that, 9.2? We're at 6.9. That's That's pretty good. But we look right over the Tasman at our closest neighbour, <laughs> at Australia, and their rate of inflation is lower than ours. And when we break down our inflation and what's driving it, around half of our inflation is what they call, and I'm sorry to get technical here, but it's called it. non-tradable inflation, which is domestic inflation. So around half of it, yes, is being driven by overseas factors, but the other half of it 
is issues here at home. And that's where we do need to look at our domestic policy settings. What are we doing to create bottlenecks in the economy, to constrain supply uh, and to push up demand beyond what our economy can cope with? And that's why we in National keep coming back to don't be doing wasteful spending, make sure you're unblocking those bottlenecks, make sure that you're not adding additional costs to the economy. And the government has just really been silent on those points. What happens if Australia's inflation goes bigger than ours, though? Well, that's going to be highly problematic for them, uh, and that's going to be really difficult for Australians and their families, as New Zealanders are experiencing right now. And what we also know is that the next thing that happens when inflation goes high is interest rates get higher. And of course, Australia right now also has much lower interest rates than New Zealand, so their mortgage holders are in a better position. So um, they, they won't want their inflation rate going higher. Uh, another problem that's happening is people trying to go about their life, you know, honestly, dairy, business owners, um, they're, face, they're facing what they're, they're calling now a crime emergency, the, the ram raids, uh, robberies, uh, including one, you know, where a customer was stabbed. Um, do, you, do you agree that it's a crime emergency now? Look, I think for some of those business owners, it really feels like an emergency because some of them have been hit more than once, two or three times, I understand. And the stories that they tell are pretty horrific, you know, guarding their shops at night uh, in case a ram raider comes, putting themselves in harm's way, watching uh, their assets being destroyed, uh, having their business wrecked uh, in a way that's really frightening. So I do feel for them and I understand uh, the, the perspective of some, which is, which is, look, this is not the New Zealand that we grew up in. This isn't the way we want our country to be. This feels pretty lawless. We need to get on top of this. Uh, and National agrees with that perspective. The, the, the government's invested $6 million to help dairy owners protect themselves, as well as $562 million investment in police in this year's budget. Is, is that enough, do you think? Well, we think that the police also need more tools. Uh, and what we have argued for some time is, for example, there should be a gangs task force dedicated uh, to dealing with gangs and ensuring that we go after them and break them up. There should also be firearm prohibition orders to stop the wrong people getting guns in their hands uh, and to make sure the police have the power to search for them uh, when they suspect that bad people have them. So we've proposed new powers for the police because we don't think it's enough to say, well, here's some money to put some bollards in. We actually want to prevent the crime occurring in the first place. Okay. What, what, sorry, I just can you just clear up, what are the firearms laws? I'm interested in this. My dad was a firearms officer. So, so what are the ones that you're proposing to help with this? So, so we've proposed firearm prohibition orders, and this is something that has been used in other jurisdictions. What it would uh, give the police is powers of search and surveillance, so that if they suspected, for example, that a gang member had a car in their vehicle, they would be able to stop them and search the car uh, for that uh, firearm. Uh, and that prohibition order would apply to those people who had previous offences. Okay, just so one is suspected, they could pull them over. Yeah, they could pull them over and they could search for them. And it would basically mean that there's a group of offenders, uh, particularly gang members, who are classified as the kind of people you don't want having access to firearms. And if the police suspect that they've got them, they can search them. Uh, without the usual warrants that they're required to get. Yeah. I'd, okay. I'd, just, I'd be very. I'd. I'd, I'd want to make sure they had a, a proper reason for suspicion, though, not just you look like you're driving in a hoodie. You know, like because we've seen this in the United States, and that doesn't go well at all in many places. Well, if you're a gang member, and you're a patch gang member, and you've been to prison for violent crime, my view is you shouldn't have access to a firearm, 
and I don't want the police to be held back from stopping you having your hands on a gun that you then use to assault a New Zealander or shoot at their house. Yeah. Uh, and that's where National stands on it. Okay, as long as they know you really are one, right, eh? not just someone who looks a bit dodgy. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that um, the, the way that we have proposed in a, a bill that we've previously drafted is that there would be a range of criteria that have to be met for the police to use that power. Okay. Uh, finally, did you watch any of the Queen's Jubilee celebrations over the weekend? Are they a big thing for you? Um, I watched a little bit. Do you know yeah. the bit that really got me was that Prince Louis? I mean, <laughs> what a cutie! I was like, oh man, I that if I can, I, I, there were a lot of terrified people going, man, if I had done that, I would have got a clip around the ears. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I thought it really humanised the royals because I think every mother has been in that situation and I certainly have, uh, where your young child isn't behaving themselves, it's on full public display and there's actually very little you can do about it except that hope that the people around you will be empathetic about the fact that it's a child and that's just how kids are and um, that's what he was, wasn't he? Uh, With with the hands on the ears to prove it. Yeah, I bet bet through gritted teeth it was like, Stucker, or there is no iPad or something like that. Maybe (laughs) she might have tried that one, I don't I don't know if that works on a prince. I don't know what they have. I'm not. Don't know. Yeah. 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 Like, only well, the small castle from now on for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. Um, do, that's right. You know, the talk of the Republic comes up. I know in Australia that they've got theirs, you know, that they've got this. I think they've even got a minister in charge of trying to get to that now. Should, mm. what, do you, what do you think when you have a look at this? Because I just wonder, because I had a look around, I thought there's not really a huge amount of bunting that was out over the week, you know, across the weekend at all or any Queen's Jubilee celebrations. Should we look at becoming a republic? I don't sense that it's a pressing issue for New Zealanders. There's not a strong movement of people saying this is the thing that we need to focus our political energy on changing. Hmm. And partly I think that's because there's not a clear alternative for what we would do in terms of our head of state uh, and what that would look like. And of course that would have to be worked through and there's a lot of challenges that come with that. So I think in the absence of a really strong movement from the people saying, right, it's time to, to leave the Commonwealth, it's time to exit um, having the, the Queen as our head of state, that we're not going to see that happen. But I've always said, look, I think it's something that will happen in my lifetime, um, but I, I'm, yet to see, I'm yet to see a movement for change. That's National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis. That's all from us this morning. Finally, someone else wrote in with a better name for Mushy Peas, Wimpy Wasabi. Thank you very much. And Stephanie's also written in, yes, I'll try and find out from Glenn where all the oranges are hiding. First up, available 24-7 on Podcast Morning Report is next with Susie and Corin. We're back live from 5 tomorrow morning.